Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. Given that we're all living in very trying times that I'm sure will be used as a DBQ in 75 years, if humanity still exists in 75 years, I just want to say I hope that all my listeners are doing well, that everyone's staying as safe, healthy, and sane as possible given the COVID-19 situation and that this podcast, short and strange though it may be, does bring a little bit of joy to your day or at least helps break up the monotony of staying at home and freaking out. Like I've mentioned in many of the last few episodes, I have opened my Patreon. Now you can access all of the benefits at the $1 a month tier. I do know right now is a time that's a little financially challenging for a lot of people. I recognize that. I am a master's student after all, so I do want to make as much of my content as accessible as possible. If you're interested, you can go to patreon.com forward slash sad girl study guides. However, if that's still a financial barrier to you, please let me know. I really do want my listeners to be able to engage in content as much as possible. You can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com or you can message me on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod. Now that all of those announcements are out of the way, I do have yet another non-COVID reason why I'm sad it's more happy sad, and that is that I have finished writing my master's thesis. I still have a few minor line edits here and there, but over 115 footnotes later, the project is done. Huzzah! I feel vaguely free, but not really, because I still have the rest of my classes to complete. Moving along past me and our global pandemic, let's talk about the subject of this week's study guide. Francoise, Madame de Maintenon, aka the second wife of Louis XIV. Her study guide has a terrible family trip, a body that is briefly MIA, and one of the most famous secret marriages in history. Let's begin. Francoise was born at some point in November 1635 in the town of Narou, France. We don't know her exact date of birth, but we do know she was baptized on November 28, 1635, so she most likely was born in the later part of November. Her birth name was Françoise d'Aubigny, but I'm just going to call her Françoise throughout this episode because, as we're going to see, her last name is going to change quite a bit. We also don't know exactly where she was born. She may have been born in the town prison for reasons that will soon become clear, but she also may have been born in the nearby Hotel du Chamon. Francoise's parents are Constant d'Aubigny, who is 50 at the time of her birth, and his wife, Jeanne de Cardillac, who is only 24. Her father is a French nobleman and the son of a very famous poet and soldier, Theodore Agrippa de Aubigny. However, at the time of Francoise's birth, Constant was in jail for debt, trying to commit treason, and possibly 
trying to murder the Cardinal de Richelieu. Even without this current arrest, Constant had previously been arrested for rape and attempted abduction, so he's not exactly the world's greatest guy. Meanwhile, Francoise's mother, Jean, is the jailer who's keeping Constant in prison's daughter, so that's a nice, not-at-all-awkward meet-cute. And Francoise is the third and youngest of their children. Constant's family were a group of well-known French Huguenot nobles. In fact, Francoise's grandfather was a really famous Huguenot poet. However, Constant himself was a little bit more ambivalent about the whole religion thing. He, famous, he famously betrayed the Huguenots in 1630, and Francoise is going to be baptized as a Roman Catholic, which makes sense because her mother was a Roman Catholic. At her baptism, she's actually going to have a local duke and the daughter of a local countess serve as her godparents. So one, her mother is taking this baptism really seriously, and two, even though her dad's in jail, the family still does have some pretty good connections. Until Francoise is seven, she's going to live with her father's sister, Louise de Villette, aka Villette. Unlike Francoise's immediate family, Villette is a Protestant, and she's going to raise Francoise to be a Calvinist. According to Francoise's later writings, she really enjoyed her time living with Villette, but it did make her realize that she was poorer than the children around her. For example, her aunt gave her shoes that were too big for her, and Francoise just had to stuff them with straw to make them fit. Her parents couldn't pay for her ringworm treatment when she was six, etc., etc., and Francoise is only able to see her family once a week on Sundays. While all this is going on, her mother, Jean, is going to the French court in an attempt to get Constant freed from prison. And in this process, Jean gets shit done. She buys up all of his debt, which is quite a lot of debt, and slowly but surely starts paying it off. She even gets to meet with Cardinal de Richelieu, the guy who Constant had been arrested for trying to murder. And it worked. Constant ends up getting freed from prison in 1644 because Jean is a goddamn hero and we should all take a second to appreciate her. Okay, so 1644. Constant is freed from prison and the entire family moves. Not just away from the town, but away from France in general. They go to the West Indies because Constant for whatever reason, is convinced that he's been chosen to be the governor of Marie Gallant. However, the trip over to the West Indies was incredibly difficult, and Francoise almost dies of a fever. And once they get to the West Indies, it turned out that Constant did not have the job. He was wrong, and in fact, there was already a governor there. So, Constant does what he does best. He dumps his family somewhere else, this time in Martinique, and heads back to France to attempt to make a life for himself? Massive question marks there. During, during this time in Martinique, 
Jean is going to be focused on attempting to raise her three children, ensure that they get some sort of food, some sort of education, while Constant is back in France spending what little money the family has managed to scrape together. It's not until 1647 that the family is reunited back in France, and almost immediately after being reunited, Constant dies. After his death, Françoise is sent back to living with her aunt, Villette, because Jean, as awesome as she is, was a little too busy dealing with the whole massively being in debt thing to raise all three children. However, Françoise is fine with this. She loved getting to live with Villette because Villette has this beautiful estate. Françoise gets to spend a ton of time running around in nature. It's fantastic, even though everyone is freaked out that her complexion is too dark and they start forcing her to wear a special nose mask so she can maintain good, pale European skin and meet the beauty standards of the day. While all this is going on, though, there is one person who isn't so happy. Francoise's well-connected, very Catholic godmother, Suzanne du Bodine who does not like the setup of her darling goddaughter, who she doesn't know that well, being raised by a non-Catholic. Luckily for Suzanne, her mother, Madame de Fouillant, is friends with Anne of Austria, the mother of Louis XIV. So Suzanne and her mother have a lot of political sway and manage to get custody of the now teenage... Francoise and sent her to a Catholic convent. This convent had a reputation for being extremely strict, and initially, Francoise was not about that life. She had no interest in going Catholic, but she eventually became close to one of the nuns, rejoined the Catholic Church, and started taking communion. And as it would turn out, Francoise would be pretty Catholic for the rest of her life. In 1651, when Françoise was 16 years old, her mother died, and suddenly Françoise is an orphan. And normally, being an orphan girl from a impoverished noble family in the French countryside in the 17th century, kind of a recipe for disaster. But luckily, her godmother's mother, Madame de Fillant, takes teenage Françoise under her wing, and brings her to Paris. By the time Françoise arrives in Paris, she has a reputation for being a touch too tan. Everyone calls her La Belle Indienne, aka the beautiful Indian, but she also has really pretty eyes, great hair, and a reputation for being way too concerned about the frivolous and material things in life to the extent that one of her confessors at the time said that he always knew when it was her sitting down for confession because of the sound of all the petticoats. Through her godmother's mother, Francoise starts to get introduced to the wealthy and intellectual members of the French Salon Society, including a well-known satirical poet, Paul Scarron, who is 25 years older than her, 
had suffered from polio and was crippled from arthritis and had not so great a reputation when it came to his sexual exploits. However, the two hit it off, they get along well, they are vaguely kindred spirits, and they started to exchange letters. A year later, in 1652, Francoise married Paul Scarron. It's most likely that the marriage between Francoise and Scarron was never consummated, given how young she was, she was only 16 or 17, and given Scarron's poor choice. Francoise later said in her life that the choice was between marrying Scarron and going to live in a convent, and she did not want to live in a convent. So it wasn't like it was a romantic relationship from the outset. But through her marriage with Scarron, Francoise starts to get properly involved with the Parisian Artistic Society. Scarron ran a very popular salon in Paris, and now that she was his wife, Francoise got to go and meet people. This experience in Scarron's salon gave Francoise an education both in intellectual life and, more importantly, how to talk, listen, and flirt. In 1660, Louis XIV got married to Marie Theresa of Spain. Apparently, Francoise watched the wedding parade from her home in Paris and said that it was the finest sight in the world that she had ever seen, which definitely doesn't create any foreshadowing whatsoever. Six weeks after the king's marriage, Paul Scarron died. At the time of his death, Francoise was only 25, and suddenly she no longer has an income because her husband's dead, and, well, wives of poets aren't exactly making a ton of money then or now. She's actually in quite a lot of debt. The debt is so serious that for a while, it looks like she might have no choice but to become a courtesan, and apparently a leading courtesan in Paris, who Francoise had met through her husband, offered to help auction off Francoise's virginity, but this offer, as kind as it was, didn't go anywhere. A lot of rumors about Francoise's sex life during the time after her husband's death circulated later on in her life, but none of them seems to be true. If she was having a fantastic amount of sex as a widow, she was extremely discreet about it because there's literally no evidence of it. Instead of becoming a courtesan, Francoise ended up going to a convent and staying there for a while. While she was in the convent, she continued to gain a reputation for being an extremely intellectual woman. She also started to get the reputation that she was very religiously uptight and orthodox and that she adored children, both of which were going to be important for her life moving forward. Even though Francoise was stuck in the convent for now, she had made some really great connections through her time as Scoron's wife. So good, in fact, that Anne of Austria, the mother of the King of France, starts giving her an annual allowance of 2,000 francs a year, which is more than enough for her to live on. Thanks to her connection to Anne of Austria, 
Francoise starts to spend time at the royal court, and while she's there, she befriended another young woman, Athenaise, the Marquis de Montespan, who I talked about in our last study guide. So that was Francoise's life for the next few years. She had a very generous patron in Anne of Austria and a new best friend in Athenaise. But in 1666, Anne of Austria died and Francoise lost her patron. Because she was no longer getting an annual stipend, she decided that her next best option, instead of going back to the convent, was to move to Portugal and somehow become a lady-in-waiting for the queen there. But before she quite managed to do that, her friend Athenaise came to the rescue. By 1668, Athenaise had begun her relationship with Louis XIV and was pregnant for the first time with one of Louis's children. However, Athenaise and Louis are very much trying to keep their relationship on the down low because, one, Athenaise is still married and her husband is infamously jealous. Two, Louis obviously is married, which is less of a concern because obviously a king is allowed to have a mistress. And three, Louis is kind of in the process of breaking up with another one of his mistresses while Athenaise is pregnant. So Athenaise goes to Francoise for help, giving birth to the child in secret and keeping the baby's secret post-birth. And Francoise pulls it off. The baby is completely kept out of the public eye. And Athenaise is like, you're amazing at this. You're the most discreet person. I know you need to keep helping me. At first, Francoise was unsure if she should get involved. After all, she is very pious. And in the Catholic Church, adultery, which is what Athenaise and Louis XIV are doing, is a massive sin. But then Francoise's confessor is like, it's okay, you can intervene, it is literally your fate to help out. So Francoise agrees to help out, and it goes great. Because of how well everything went, Athenaise ends up making Francoise the governess of all the children she has with Louis XIV. Francoise will end up being the closest to the oldest of Athenaise's children with Louis, who had a bad leg and couldn't walk properly. Because Francoise started to get a good reputation as being an amazing governess and just educating the heck out of children, she was asked by other nobles to serve as the governess for their illegitimate children. So suddenly she had a great new gig going. In 1671, Francoise Garon most likely met Louis, who was three years younger than her, for the first time. Apparently, Louis did not love her. He called her unbearable. But then again, Louis wasn't exactly a fan of women who were too smart, and Francoise was definitely extremely intelligent. However, he recognizes that she's doing a good job raising his children, so he lets her stay on as governess. Then, in 1673, Louis makes his children with Athenaise legitimate. Now that the kids are legitimate, Francoise can go more public with her role in the royal court, and she starts getting 
more employment opportunities from other nobles, and more influence. Once she's more public at court, she and Louis actually start to bond. Louis forgets that he had found her so utterly insufferable, and the two actually become really friendly really fast. Athenaise, however, is not happy about this and completely turns on Francoise because she's convinced that Francoise is trying to seduce Louis away from her. And in fairness, Louis probably was into her because Louis XIV was a massive horn dog, and because Francoise was pretty, and she was always surrounded by children, and was nice to talk to, and was a good listener, and all that stuff that men like. But Francoise almost certainly was not trying to win over Louis's romantic affections because in letters from this time period, she keeps complaining about how Louis keeps hitting on her and how she finds it extremely annoying. In 1674, in 1674, Francoise uses money from Louis that she had saved up to buy her own estate, the Chateau de Moutonnon, which is beautiful and natural and reminds her of her happy childhood with her aunt, Villette. The estate also allows Francoise to get some physical space away from Athenaise because it's 25 miles away from Versailles, which means that Francoise can always leave if her frenemy is getting a little too jealous. The next year, in 1675, Louis gives her a title and she officially becomes the Madame de Maintenon. As the 1670s progress, Francoise gets closer and closer to Louis, all the while continuing to take care of his children with Athenaise. And as we get deeper into the 70s, Louis isn't liking Athenaise as much. He's starting to realize that she can be a little bit whiny and a little bit mean. And Francoise is there, nodding sympathetically and agreeing that, yeah, Athenaeus sometimes can be a real bitch. By 1680, thanks to her connections to the king, Francoise is promoted to be the head lady-in-waiting to the wife of Louis's heir, the Dauphin, also named Louis. With this promotion, for the first time since she arrived at court, Francoise could function independently of Athenaise and didn't have to rely on her anymore for money or influence. Because of this, the relationship between the two friends really started to fall apart. One reason for the destruction of the relationship was because Francoise was seriously concerned about both Athenaise's and Louis' salvation because they were committing adultery. And while it was nice that Francoise was concerned, I'm sure it's really annoying when your friend keeps telling you, well, you do know you're going to hell for having sex with the guy you're into. Right? Right. Also, Athenaise was super annoyed that Francoise was rising in influence faster than her at court. And lastly, Louis made Francoise tell Athenaise about any demotions in her position instead of manning up and doing it himself, which must have been really fun for the two former friends.
1680, by the time she was independent of Athens, Francoise started to push Louis to restart his relationship with his actual wife, Maria Theresa, who Louis had basically been ignoring for the last 20 years. Athenaise is especially unhappy about this choice. But Francoise wins out. Louis actually starts treating Maria Theresa like a decent human for the first time in quite a while. And this action makes it very clear to everyone at Versailles who really holds the influence and power. Francoise even starts to get the nickname at Versailles, Madame Now, which is a pun on her name because Maintenant is French for now, and everyone's like, oh, Francoise gets what she wants immediately. She wants power now, and she's getting it now. She also gets her own official rooms in Versailles, which is a huge deal if you're not a member of the royal family. And yes, these rooms are very small and very out of the way, but they're hers, and she doesn't have to share them with anyone. It is a little unclear exactly when Francoise and Louis started their physical affair. If you asked Athenaise, it probably was in 1673, while he was still deep in his relationship with her because Athenaise is extremely jealous and did not trust Francoise at all. Or the relationship may have begun in 1678, right when the affair of the poisons was in whole was in full swing and Athenaise was getting accused of using love spells to win over the king and her life was quickly getting ruined or they may not have had a physical relationship for a very long time at all but what we do know is that by the time louis's first wife maria theresa died in 1683 louis and francoise were in a very deep emotional, if not physical, relationship. And after Maria Theresa's death, Francoise goes to Louis's rooms and they have a long conversation about something. We don't know exactly what that something was, but what we do know is that by September 19th, about two months after Maria Theresa died, Francoise felt extreme relief over what was going to happen next. And what happened next was that Louis and Francoise secretly got married. Once again, it is unclear exactly when the two got married. The marriage either took place in October 1683, a few months after Maria Theresa died, or in 1684, or as late as 1697, although that later date doesn't really make any sense. The two earlier dates seem much more likely because Francoise was pretty religious and was not about to have sex out of wedlock if she could help it, and it's not like Louis is going to sit around waiting to have sex with a woman that he likes, and also because the Pope began giving her official gifts in public by 1685, way before 1697, and why would the Pope do that if she wasn't married to the King of France? Also, 
Francoise was getting some pretty serious privileges that only someone married to the king would get before 1697, such as getting to sit in his presence. No matter when the marriage actually happened, the marriage between Francoise and Louis was what was known as a morganatic marriage, which meant that Francoise couldn't use the title of queen, and if she had any children with Louis, spoiler alert, she didn't, these children would be unable to enter the line of inheritance or gain any royal titles. If the marriage did happen in 1683-1684, which it probably did, Athenaise still technically was Louis's mistress, which is lovely and awkward. However, quickly the tables turn, and suddenly Athenaise is dependent on Francoise for favors, etc., etc. But Francoise is a nice human, and she grants almost all of them to Athenaise. If she ever was petty and withholding, I couldn't find evidence of it. And then, in 1685, right when Athenaise is settling in to this whole being married to the King of France thing, Louis does something that indirectly makes Francoise look pretty bad. He revoked the Edict of Nantes. In case you're forgetting what the Edict of Nantes was from your AP Euro class, it's okay. Quick reminder, the Edict of Nantes had given non-Catholics in France, specifically the Protestant Huguenots, the right to practice their religion freely in France, which was a huge deal and had prevented literally decades of religious warfare. And suddenly, it's undone. And a lot of people think that Francoise had something to do with the revocation because she was known to be an extremely pious Catholic. However, it's almost certain that Francoise didn't have anything to do with the Edict of Nantes because, one, she was very practical in terms of religion, and two, she did not like mixing religion and politics. Even if Francoise wasn't involved, revoking the Edict of Nantes caused a lot of issues in the long term because most of the Huguenots are middle class, aka the few people in France who can actually pay a large amount of the taxes that the royal regime needs to function, and they are suddenly piecing out of France to go to the Netherlands and England. And revoking the Edict of Nantes also stirs up a lot of anti-Catholic feelings in the rest of Europe, and suddenly people are pretty unfairly, in my opinion, blaming Francoise. The next year, in 1686, Francoise, maybe an attempt to rehabilitate her public image, creates the Maison Royale de Saint-Louis, aka Saint-Cyr, a school to educate poor noblewomen. Quickly, Saint-Cyr becomes a huge cultural and educational center. It had over 200 female students and a curriculum that was way more sophisticated than other schools for girls at the time. In addition to boring stuff like etiquette, the female students also got to learn things like Latin and math. Most of the classes were done in a more interactive dialogue form, not the more traditional lecture form, and Francoise hired a specially trained group of teachers, the Doms of Saint-Louis, to teach the students. Saint-Cyr also became the spot of the premieres of several 
plays. For example, the French playwright Racine premiered a show there. By the 1690s, Saint-Cyr was known for being the place to help impoverished noble girls get educated so they could get married, which was sort of the situation that Francoise had been in as a child. Around this time, Francoise also adopts two children, Marguerite de Villette, her cousin's daughter, but Marguerite was pretty rebellious, which caused a lot of trouble for Francoise and Marguerite ended up marrying an abusive comte, and things did not go well. But Francoise also adopted Francoise Charlotte d'Aubigné, her actual niece, one of her brother's children, and that little adoption went much better. Even though, even though Francoise is doing good stuff in terms of education and helping poor noble girls, but not actually poor peasants, she wasn't that popular at Versailles. A lot of nobles did not love this idea of some random woman who was the widow of a poet having so much sway over the king, especially when Francoise started urging Louis to tone down some of the more salacious bits of life at Versailles. She was especially despised by her sister-in-law, Elisalot, who blamed Francoise for literally anything that went wrong in her life. A lot of people at Versailles started to blame Francoise whenever anything in terms of domestic or foreign policy went badly. For example, when France entered the War of Spanish Succession, which ended up being kind of a big loss for France, people at Versailles said that she pushed Louis to push for his grandson to get the Spanish throne, which kickstarted the war. But let's be real, Louis would have done that anyways. We saw that during the Maria Theresa study guide when Louis was looking for all sorts of ways to glomp on to Spanish territory using questionable claims of his, of his wife's rights to the land. Francoise also briefly got engaged in a bit of religious scandal. She became sympathetic to quietism, which was this proto-mystic sect in Catholicism, and helped free one of the quietest leaders, Madame Guyon. But as soon as she got yelled at for her involvement in quietism by Louis, and it wasn't politically savvy for her to be friends with Guyon, she backed down and threw Guyon to the metaphorical wolves. This made a lot of people at court think that Francoise was extremely wishy-washy and only cared about her own self-interests. Despite all this, Francoise did have a few friends at court. She befriended Mary Beatrice, the exiled Queen of England slash wife of James II, and was also close to Princess Marie Adelaide of Savoy, the wife of the Dauphin, and the future mother of Louis XV, and really pushed for the young princess to actually get an education and learn things like how to speak French. Then, in 1701, Louis's younger brother, the Duke d'Orléans, died, which was pretty devastating for Louis, but which let Francoise have a nice little moment of pettiness. The Duke's wife, Francoise's sister-in-law, Lisalotte, had historically been terrible. 
to Francoise. And now suddenly, Lieselot is a widow, and widows usually get sent to convents, and Lieselot is not about that life, and had to beg Francoise to keep Louis from sending her away, and apologize for all the mean things she had said, and Francoise takes a moment, lets Lieselot really panic, and then says, yes, it's fine, I'll talk to you, Louis, and I'll make sure you don't get sent to a convent. Francois spends the next 10 years hanging out in Versailles, being a good wife, continuing to be a patron for education. Then, in 1711, Louis's only legitimate son and heir, the Dauphin, also named Louis, also dies. This is also really hard on Louis because his heir's dead, the next in line to the throne is his grandson, Louis XV, who's only a kid, and by now, Louis is really sick. Both he, he has a terrible diet, gout, and a really lovely annual fistula, which just isn't, fit, which just isn't healing itself. Both he and Francoise are getting older and older and sicker and sicker. Louis from gout and the fistula, and Francoise from arthritis and rheumatism. Then in 1712, Marie Adelaide and her husband, Louis's oldest grandson, both die within the same week. Francoise, tragically, is one of the last people who speaks to Adelaide, and the death of both of them just completely devastates Louis. By August 1715, it's really clear that Louis is going to die. He and Francoise start burning all the letters that they had written together, which is a choice and which is why it's pretty hard to determine when various aspects of their relationship truly began. On August 30th, Francoise leaves Versailles after her confessor told her that Louis had told him that he didn't need her. Before she left, Louis said goodbye to her three times. He first says, I'm s he first tells her that they would be reunited soon. He then apologized for not making her happier in their life, and then he said that he was worried for what would happen to her after his death. After Francoise leaves for the final time, he said she was useful in every way, but above all, for my, but above all, for my salvation, which is way nicer than anything Louis had to say for any other woman he was sexually involved with, as we saw with both the Maria Theresa and Athenay's episodes. On September the 1st, 1715, Louis the 15th, Louis the 14th dies at last. Due to the fact that Francois's marriage to him was only a morganatic marriage, she didn't have a whole lot to do in the new reign. The new regent did give her a pretty hefty pension, which was nice, and a lot of foreign diplomats wrote her condolence letters, which suggested that her relationship was respected outside of France, but Francoise isn't going to stick around in Versailles. Instead, she moved to Saint-Cyr, which she loved. That was her baby, her passion project. And while she was at Saint-Cyr, she spent a lot of time hanging out with Mer 
with Mary Beatrice, James II's second wife. Also, while she was at Sancerre, Tsar Peter the Great came to visit her and literally just showed up in her bedroom while she was sleeping because Peter the Great did not have boundaries. And when she woke up, most likely in horror, he told her, I came to see everything worthy of note that France contained. So that's a nice little boost to her ego. Francoise ended up dying on April 15th, 1719, at the age of 83, at Saint-Cyr. She was buried at a chapel in Saint-Cyr. However, her body did not remain at the chapel. During the revolution, it got exhumed, like the bodies of so many people related to the noble family, and then lost. It was not actually rediscovered again until World War II, and then her body was reburied in the royal chapel of Versailles, and then returned back to Saint-Cyr, where it remains to this day. So, for those fans of the study guide who prefer bullet points to a full-on lecture, let's do a quick little recap into the life of Francois Scarron, the Madame de Maintenon. Francoise was born in 1635 in France. Her father was a very scandalous French nobleman who was currently in prison for a whole lot of unsavory things, and her mother was the daughter of the owner of said prison. Francoise was the youngest of their three children. Growing up, Francoise mostly lived with her aunt, Valette, who was raising her while Francoise's actual mother, Jean, was running around trying to raise money to pay off her husband's debt and meeting with various political figures to get her father freed from prison. It ended up working. In 1644, the entire family got reunited and moved to the West Indies because Francoise's father was convinced he'd have a job there. Spoiler alert, he did not have a job there. He went back to France while the rest of the family got to hang out in Martinique for a bit, and eventually he paid for them to make it back to the continent. However, as soon as the family returned to France, he died, and Jean couldn't take care of three children given how much debt Constant had gone into. So, Francoise was sent back to live with her aunt, who was not a Catholic, which made Francois's godmother extremely angry, and Francois's godmother had a lot of political sway because she had connections to the mother of the king of France. So Francois was taken to a convent, converted to Catholic, converted to Catholicism, and for the rest of her life would have a reputation for being extremely Catholic. In 1651, Jean dies making Francoise an orphan, which isn't the best position to be in as an impoverished noble girl in the mid-1600s in France. Luckily, through her godmother's connections, Francoise made it to Paris, where she got connected to various intellectuals and elites, including this satirical poet, Paul Scarron, who was extremely sick and 25 years older than her. However, the two hit it off on an intellectual level, and they got married. Scoron died eight years into the marriage, leaving a 25-year-old Francoise behind with quite a lot of debt 
and not a lot of options. She either could become a high-class courtesan or chill out in a convent for a bit. She chose the latter. During her time in the, con the convent, thanks to the connection she had made through her husband, Francoise ended up befriending Anne of Austria and getting a yearly allowance of 2,000 livres, of 2,000 francs, which wasn't too shabby. Through Anne of Austria, Francoise started spending time at the royal court, where she made connections with another young noblewoman, Athenaise, the Marquis de Montespan. After Anne of Austria died, Athenaise sort of stepped in as Francoise's patron, because Athenaise needed a not-so-small favor from Francoise. Athenaise was Louis XIV's main mistress, and she was suddenly pregnant, but Louis wanted to keep the baby on the down-low. Francoise agreed to help Avenaise give birth to the baby secretly and then keep the child out of the public eye. Francoise was so good at this that Avenaise asked Francoise to stay on as the governess to any children that she and Louis may have. And as it turned out, she and Louis were going to have quite a few children together. In the early 1670s, Francoise and Louis met for the first time and did not get along at all because Francoise was too smart for him. But once Louis legitimized his children with Athenaise, he and Francoise spent more time together and ended up being very close. Francoise began getting more influence at court and enough money to buy her own estate, the Chateau de Matanon, which is where she gets her name, Madame de Matanon. As the 1670s progressed, Francoise got closer and closer to Louis, but more and more distance from her friend Athenaise, who was extremely jealous. This came to a head in 1680, when she got promoted to be the head lady-in-waiting to the wife of the Dauphin, which meant that she could finally function independently of Athenaise for the first time, right when Athenaise was dealing with some serious drama from the affair of the poisons. The friendship between the two women was virtually over. In 1683, Louis's wife, Maria Theresa, died, and this was going to be a complete turning point for Athenaise and Louis's relationship. It's unclear exactly when the friendship between the two of them became an emotional affair and then transformed into a physical affair, but sometime in late 1683, early 1684, the two secretly got married, and the marriage was pretty much publicly recognized by 1685 or so. However, this marriage was a morganatic marriage, which meant that Francoise couldn't use the title queen. As the wife of Louis XIV, Francoise really focused on becoming an educational patron. She opened a school for impoverished noblewomen so that they could marry well-off men and improve their standing in society. She also adopted two of her younger family members and tried to get them to marry well. In one case, they were great. The other case, not so much. However, despite all this, Francoise was not necessarily popular at court. A lot of people didn't love the fact that this random woman had swooped in and had all this way over the king 
and had gotten Louis to tone down some of the more salacious but fun bits of life at Versailles. She also was blamed any time something went wrong politically, whether it was domestically or within the kingdom. As the 1700s started, life began getting more and more difficult for Francoise. One, both she and Louis were getting older and sicker, and then various heirs to the throne started dying, which was extremely difficult for Louis. Louis XIV took a turn for the worst in August 1715. When it became really clear that he was going to die, Francoise saw him for one last time on August 30th. They had a long triple goodbye, and two days later, Louis XIV died. Because their marriage had only been morganatic, Francoise didn't really inherit anything after his death. She was not able to really take an active role in the next regime, but she did get a pretty hefty pension and recognition from most of the other monarchs in Europe, which was nice. After Louis' death, she moved to Saint-Cyr, where she had a cute little run-in with Tsar Peter the Great of Russia, and then died on April 15, 1719, at the very old age of 83. So, that is Francoise, the second wife of Louis Fourteenth. She really is an example of fairly rags to riches. I hesitate to say fully rags because she was born into a noble family after all, but she pulled herself up by those bootstraps and made things happen to her. And yes, she is a little bit more of a goody two-shoes than Athenais was, but sometimes you just need that in your life. Most of my research for this episode came from Holly Sennett's article for the History of Royal Women, Scott Mel's article for Unofficial Royalty, the article on the Madame de Matanon for the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, and Veronica Buckley's excellent book, The Secret Wife of Louis XIV, Francoise de Aubigny, Madame de Matanon. As always, for a full list of sources and relevant images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Next week, I'm going to be doing an episode on Louis' eccentric yet fabulous sister-in-law, Lieselot. Until then, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. If you want to financially support the podcast, that means the world to me. You can go to patreon.com forward slash sadgirlstudyguides to check out the various benefits by becoming a patron, such as bi-weekly tangent casts, where I talk about people, places, or things that just don't quite fit in to a full episode. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, because of the COVID situation, I've opened up the tangent casts to listeners at any level of donation. As always, if you want to reach me on social media, there's the Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod and the Instagram at SadGirlStudies. The best way to help the podcast grow is to tell a friend or subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, and Spotify, and let me know how I'm doing. Rate or review or else I'll be sad. Thanks!